Hey, we're back for episode 10, yes, 10, of AOE Engage, the podcast. Today, we have a wonderful star medical educator coming to us with so many titles that I can't even read off of my screen. Today, we're meeting Christina Shenvi. Christina received her bachelor's degree from Princeton University, her PhD from UC Berkeley, and her MD from Yale University. She completed her residency in emergency medicine and fellowship in geriatric emergency medicine here at UNC, where she's currently practicing emergency medicine as a physician educator, and she's the director of the Office of Academic Excellence. Today, we're going to chat about what Christina does and what it's like when she's not on at work, some of her upbringing and her travels around the world, procrastination, talking about how we should live as leaders and live true to ourselves. We also talk about some advice and leadership and how to make more time for yourself in your life, the driving force behind our motivation and how to promote our own longevity. And finally, we talk about a magic potion that you may be able to buy one day. And we also get to chat a little bit about 90s music. Sit back, relax, make sure you have some coffee because you're not gonna wanna miss this interview. You are such a fun person to work with. You're one of the first people I met when I started working in this job. And so, you know, I've gotten to know you a lot and the rest of the leadership council pretty intimately over the last two years. I know you as a doer. You're determined, you're fierce, you're dependable, you're passionate. Um, The list can go on and on. When you're not on, so to say, and at work or in scrubs, perhaps like on a rainy Saturday morning and you have nowhere to go, maybe even the kids are out of the house. What, what is Christina like? What is she doing? Man, that sounds so fun. I want a rainy <laughs> Saturday at home like that. <laughs> no, well, if there's truly nothing on my calendar and I'm not working, then you'll probably find me with my kids. Usually we will uh, play board games or make cookies or this is genius. You ready for this? for people who have kids, I found that if you call anything a party, it becomes more fun. So I'll say, Hey guys, let's have a reading party. And we'll all sit together on the couch or on the porch and bring our own books and we'll have a reading party. So those are common things that we'll do. If I were truly by myself and had already, you know, gone to the gym or done other things like that, if I am by myself and have nothing to do in an evening, no work deadlines. One of the things that I love to do is to listen to audiobooks and paint or make crafts. I don't paint well. In fact, I cannot do anything without any actual skill, but I enjoy it and I'll make different abstract designs and things like that. So that's like a perfect night for me. That sounds so fun. I want to come to the party too. You I can mean, come have a reading party. <laughs> the, the reading party. I mean, it does sound really fun and things are more fun when you're all together and dear listener, you cannot see, but the beautiful porch behind Christina is really <laughs> cool. Like I would love to cuddle up in the blue couch corner right there. Yes. It would be with a good book, beautiful. maybe with a, a cup of coffee or something with yes. a good book. And I, that leads me to ask, because I know you're an avid reader and you have so many great suggestions. How are you doing in terms of the constant struggle between e-reading tablets and physical books. What are you doing these days? Well, I made the transition a few years ago to audiobooks and I love it. I had resisted for a long time because I love the physical books, especially older books. I love to go to used bookstores and thumb through the 
old pages that, you know, other people have written their names in. And I love buying used books, but I found that I just could not keep up with everything that I wanted to read if I was reading physically. So I switched to audiobooks and I adore it on the way into work. Cause I still commute into work. It's about 25, 30 minutes. I will typically listen to a nonfiction book on the way in. And then on the way home, I'll listen to a fiction book. So if you want the, some recommendations, the most recent book nonfiction that I finished is called Never Split the Difference. And it's about negotiation. It's written by this guy who was an FBI hostage negotiator. And now he applies some of his principles to negotiating in a job or just negotiating with other people or in business. That was really fascinating. And uh, the genre of choice for my fiction is typically fantasy or sci-fi. And right now I am in the middle of the series Shadow and Bone by Lee Bardugo, which they just made a Netflix show out of. So if you want any more sci-fi or fantasy recommendations, I have dozens of those also. <laughs> yes, I always I dare to ask you a, a book recommendation because I know you're going to have at least seven <laughs> to share. And yes. I love it. I love it so much. I even love how you broke it down by genre. Is there a reason you do nonfiction in the morning, fiction in the afternoon? Well, yes, because typically in the afternoon when I'm coming home, I'm more tired and my brain just needs something easier. And so I try to do the, the nonfiction in the way to work when I have more energy and I'm you know ready to learn and more focused. And then on the way home, I just want something fun. I hear that. I really think that your Saturday mornings with whoever is in the house is always going to be a party. I, well, I'm <laughs> jealous. I'm quite jealous. Well, except when we have a cleaning party, then they're Ooh. like, mom, it's not a party. I'm like, clean up party. No, <laughs> that doesn't go on. over as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're catching up on that one. Speaking of kind of like the little ones, I'd love to turn this towards who you were as young Christina, because someone so ambitious, so passionate certainly has to have some roots within some of the things that you've kind of developed your interest in. And I love to know the roots of those. So what sights, sounds, smells, what were things that were contributing towards your growth as an adult? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned roots because to be honest, I was never able to really put down roots many places as a kid. We mm. moved around a lot and I was born in Kenya. We moved around in Africa, the Middle East, and then I didn't move permanently to the U.S. till I was 18 going to college. Wow. And so uh, I guess the it, rather less so putting down roots and more so learning to adapt to new people, new cultures, new languages, new climates, new places. And that constant need to adapt was something that was very useful. Something that I had to unlearn was the uh, learning to trust and learning to put down roots. Because when you move around a lot, there's a wariness about creating deep roots or deep friendships. And now that I am more permanently in one place, I have to unlearn that and learn that, no, this is the time, this is the place. And now, of course, I've been here 11 years at UNC, and I've really enjoyed being able to create longstanding connections with people and with places. Wow. I had no idea that mm -hmm. you were born outside the United States, much less your childhood being outside of the nation as well. 
Wow. So that makes me think kind of into your path as an educator. What was your schooling like growing up? Well, I went to different types of schools, American schools, British schools. I spent the most time in British schools, which have a completely different curriculum. And you do your O levels and A levels. And, you know, I wore a tie and a blazer and we had (laughs) prefects and and head girl and head boy and that kind of thing. Um, But uh, throughout that, in terms of my path as an educator, even as a kid, one thing that has been a common thread is that I love making order out of chaos. So I love taking as an educator information that's disorganized or messy or hard to understand, and then restructuring it and reframing it and turning it into something better. And I, throughout undergrad and grad school, I taught and I was a TA and a tutor, a coach. And I really enjoyed also, this is such a cliche, but I really enjoyed seeing the light bulb come on with people. And now in my role as director of the Office of Academic Excellence at UNC, I get to spend a lot of my time talking with students about how they study, how they learn, how to focus. And it's just so rewarding seeing students who are near failing, being able to really bring up their scores and be successful. within your nuclear family. How, how was it kind of moving round to round? Were you a close family? Was it more independence that you found as you grew? Well, so I had my, my parents and my younger brother. My parents gave me quite a lot of responsibility and freedom. And I grew up and have always been fiercely independent. And it's funny because I see that now in some of my kids. My daughter, who's 10, her first two-word phrase was, by self. So anything that we offered to help her with, she said, no, by self. And so she could tie her shoes and put her clothes on, even though she was two years younger before my older son could, because by self, she would just tough it out and figure it out herself. And I I'm realizing now as an adult, that that serves you very well in many situations of being willing to jump in, try things out, figure it out yourself, but also knowing when is the time to ask for help and when is the time to rely more on your team and that you don't always have to do it by self. Sometimes doing it with your team is the best way. And so being able to be adaptable and agile to say, well, this is something I need to do by self and I need to just figure it out. And this is something I need to ask for help, or this is something I need to delegate. I don't need to do it by self every time. I'm stealing that. When my boss asks me if I want to work on a group project, bye self. Kind of came to the U.S. when you were 18 and you went through undergraduate and graduate school. You completed your Ph.D. in chemical biology in 2005 from UC Berkeley. You completed your studies at Yale for your M.D. And so this moment on your resume really stood out to me because what I wondered was what 
what was Christina thinking? <laughs> Why would you do another huge program? What transition was happening for you in that time? Was it spontaneous? Was it always in your plan? It was not always in my plan. I had always loved science and loved chemistry and biology and got a lot of feedback as an undergrad that, oh, you would be really good in science and chemistry. And so I went to grad school and I did love the intellectual stimulation and the things that I could research, but I realized that to be honest, I didn't want to do it myself. <laughs> and doing research is very much an, an isolated pursuit for the most part. And I realized that I wanted to work with other people and also that I wanted to have a more direct or immediate impact. With research, you can have a, a fantastic impact, but often it's 10, 20 years in the future. And for me, I wanted to be able to see the results of what I was doing. And so it's kind of funny that I ended up in emergency medicine, which stereotypically has the image of being a very a short attention span because you see one patient after another, you go from person to person, you want to see immediate results whenever possible. Now that I'm more mid-career, I realize that honestly, I could work in almost any job. My goals are less so what job I'm doing and more, I want to be able to relieve suffering, whether that's for patients, for students, for faculty, for clients, for colleagues. I want to relieve suffering. I also want to work in a great team and have people who have complementary strengths to me. But then I also need a certain amount of autonomy and creativity. And that's one of the things that I love about being a, in academic medicine is I have a lot of autonomy and creativity, but also great teams to work with and new and interesting challenges to solve and face. And that's a great rationale for wanting to follow passion versus sticking with something that may be comfortable of you could have been so successful in just research, but you also knew that there was something within you that was calling towards working with people, being a people facing mm -hmm. professional. And I think that's really admirable. What, what advice would you give someone maybe who's in that same position today um, thinking, you know, I'm, I'm in something that I've trained for, but I'm not necessarily sure if it's my forever. Yeah. And that's such a, a challenging spot to be in. I would say several things that they should consider. One is really understanding what it is that you don't like, or what it is that you want from a different job or different position. And thinking about not the next year or next two years, but thinking about 20 years from now, what will it look like if you stay in the same role? And what would it look like if you transitioned or retrained in some other role? Because often we look at these barriers that are, you know, one or two years in front of us. And yet those barriers will look very small when we're looking back 20 years from now. Fun exercise that can be really helpful is to think about writing yourself a letter seven years from now. So when you look back seven years from now or 10 years from now, and you've solved your current problem, you've figured it out, you've solved it, everything worked out perfectly, write yourself a letter telling yourself how you did it. Because sometimes the, those immediate challenges seem so complicated and unsolvable. And yet, if you make the assumption that I've already solved these problems, then looking back, tell yourself how you solved them. And I've certainly used that uh, successfully for some challenges that I've had too. To even just think about writing to yourself in the future and then actually fulfilling that duty. Mm -hmm. I had a Spanish teacher in high school who did that for us when we were learning future tense. And she had us write letters to ourselves. Of course, not about professional <laughs> problems, but more like, <laughs> what do you think you're doing once you're in college yeah. or after high school? And she actually waited a year or two to send those to us. And so That's we got them back in two years. And it was so bizarre to read your past self, like, how fast things can change mm -hmm. in a matter of years. 
and within the pandemic, even a matter of days from going from, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow to here's our vaccine. Maybe the world is opening back up, but wait, there's variants. It's quite interesting. I'm trying to think that that far forward, but I do respect the, the practice of kind of thinking what, if these problems are over and done Mm -hmm. with, I know I'm going to do them. What's beyond that? What, what is holding me back? popular podcast described you as stoic, one who can endure pain or hardship without showing their feelings or complaining. And I don't really believe in the latter piece of that, but more (laughs) rather the former. (laughs) What comes to mind when you think of yourself in this way as a stoic? They were probably talking actually about capital S stoicism, which means more than just having a stiff upper lip. And it's actually a whole school of philosophy dating back over 2000 years. And it means having mental fortitude and equanimity in the face of trials. The key tenets of stoicism are really the pursuit of their four cardinal virtues of wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. And the way that you pursue them is through the core philosophy, which is that you have power over your thoughts and not external things. Marcus Aurelius was a a famous Roman emperor and one of the best known Stoics. And one of the quotes of his that I love is, if you are pained by external things, it is not they that disturb you. It's not those external things that disturb you. It's your own judgment of them. So it's your own thoughts that is what is disturbing you. And it is in your power to wipe out that judgment. So for example, if we are feeling anxious about something, Sam's feeling nervous about a big lecture I'm about to give. And I've certainly had this situation or these thoughts where I remember I was at a national conference and I was about to give a talk on geriatric trauma. And I was nervous that people were going to think that I don't know what I'm talking about. People will think I'm stupid or people just won't like me. They won't like how I talk. They'll walk out halfway through. And I literally was there 10 minutes early to get mic'd up. And I sat a couple rows back. I didn't stand up by the stage because I didn't want people to know that I was a speaker because I thought if they saw me, they would walk out, which is such a silly thing. But I was feeling nervous and anxious and realizing that those feelings of anxiety or nervousness are not created by the outside world. They're created by my thoughts. One of the other Aurelius quotes that I love is he said, today I escaped anxiety or no, I discarded it because it was within me in my own perceptions, not outside. So in that situation, realizing that, no, all these people came and, you know, paid their dues and came here to this lecture hall at 9 a.m. because they wanted to hear about this topic. And so it's really not about me. And that anxiety is only coming from my own thoughts. That nervousness is coming from my thoughts, but it's in my control to change those thoughts. I can control what I think. I can control the thoughts that I choose to entertain. I think of it like a sweater. I can put on the sweater that says people are going to hate me and walk out halfway through, or I can put on a different sweater that says people came because they're interested in this topic. And I have some useful things that I can tell them about it. So to me, that mindset and framework has really been life-changing. And there's, there's really so much more that could be said about stoicism, but it certainly 
has helped me weather a lot of the the bumps and challenges of this year and and also just of careers. It's funny, I turned um, 40 two years ago in August of uh, 2019. And I decided at that time that my new life motto would be I will meet life's trials with equanimity and poise. And so whenever something frustrating came, that was kind of, that was my motto. I will meet this trial with equanimity and poise. Little did did I know that a few short months after that COVID would start and there would just be like lots and lots of trials. Um, but there we are. I was glad that I had already started that practice in small things, small trials that we face in life of, oh, the trap there's traffic or there's a accident and I have to take a different route or whatever the small trials are, those are practice for then dealing with larger trials because realizing that the frustration, the anger, the sense of betrayal, the sense of helplessness, whatever it is, all of those things are coming from thoughts and it's in our power to choose new thoughts. I just end the podcast right here. (laughs) And we're done. And we're done. That's completely it. In those times, as we look back on this past year, what was your impression at the beginning of 2020 as we moved into complete chaos within the United States and seeing your role as an emergency medicine physician? Yeah, certainly that has been a journey. And I think when things first started and we were worried about PPE and nobody knew how this was spread and there was all this uncertainty, I really was amazed by how much in the emergency medicine and medicine community overall we said, this is our time. This is our moment. This is what we are here for in history. This is what we are trained to do and how much my fellow faculty, my residents rallied. There was just such a rallying around each other, around teamwork, around supporting each other, around, you know, being there safely for our patients And I remember uh, being so impressed with our chief residents at the time, especially because they had to remake the schedule multiple times. You know, we learned the day before that, okay, now this group of residents from a different service is not going to be on our schedule. So they had to remake the schedule over and over. And what I realized is that, you know, in times of peace, if you take a, a peaceful pond and you throw a rock in it, it ripples all the way out. But if there is a storm going on and there's just waves everywhere, that same rock has no effect. So if they had been asked to remake the schedule three times in a week in times of of peace, when everything else was calm, it would have felt like a big deal. But when there's waves tossing and turning, you start to just take these other things in stride because you have to, because you say, you know what, right now, what we have to focus on is keeping everyone on this ship alive. And so those small rocks that you would normally make little waves across the pond, we don't even notice them. We take them in stride. So there was a lot of rallying, a lot of, um, you know, figuring things out on the fly and a lot of adaptation to new protocols, new policies, new staffing models that were just changing every week and you just had to roll with it. Um, So I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for the vaccine and that now everyone feels safer and there's 
it's starting to get back to normal. I, I really love to hear that. And I imagine kind of those folks that were learning in this process, such as students and residents and trainees all around, uh, just the protocols and strategies that will forever uh, be cemented into the ways that you all work. Do you feel, do you already see kind of those lessons being played out in the day-to-day operations that you all do? Well, we've definitely learned how to adapt more quickly and how to change what we're doing. I think you know, this is not the last pandemic that we will see as humans. And this whole idea that these are unprecedented times, they're not unprecedented. We've had major pandemics, you know, every hundred years or so that were much, much worse in our lifetimes. Certainly this is in the Western world. This is the worst pandemic that we've had. But so I think it's great that we've learned that, you know, we need to be prepared and we need to be agile to be able to adapt quickly. And so I'm hopeful that some of those, uh, lessons learned will carry over not just for our hospital, but nationally for national preparedness. exciting thing on that note of hope that has come to be recently is a new title that you carry amongst so many awesome ones, which is president of APWIMS, which stands for the Association of Professional Women in Medical Sciences, and that's housed in the Office of Faculty Affairs and Leadership Development. When I think amongst this organization, it's such an important piece of annual event programming and leadership in the School of Medicine. From your toolbox of so many amazing leadership skills, which ones do you feel are going to be most important in this day and age to utilize in this new work? Well, my my vision for AppWIMS, my goal for the year when Amelia Drake asked me what I wanted my theme to be, is I want it to be one of empowerment. I feel like there's been a lot of focus on, you know, research productivity has been hurt by COVID, especially among women faculty and the extra burdens that both men and women, but especially women have had to bear in terms of childcare and how that's affected their academic productivity. And so my goal is to start to think about solutions and start to think about how can we empower ourselves? How can we empower each other? And together as a faculty, how we can be more empowered for our own career success. So uh, our fall retreat, which will be September 24th, I have two amazing nationally known women who will be coming to talk about empowering our time. So how can we be more successful at home and at work? How can we manage with all the different hats that we wear? And that is going to be just a phenomenal time for uh, women faculty to get some practical tools, but also shift how we think about uh, our time and our work and work-life balance and all of that. Well, how perfect. I mean, the stars have aligned because of your work in time for your life, (laughs) your course. I mean, that's going to be those discussions will kind of be a springboard for the work you continue to do because it's so up your alley. Mm -hmm. I know that feels good. (laughs) Yes, I'm so excited about it. And so that kind of answers the question of like, how are we bringing women professionals along with you in those ambitions as president of how to take an organization or take a group of people from point A to point B? 
And I also think kind of within the nuance of that, of marginalized identities, such as Black women, queer women, are there any other ambitions or any other plans down the mm-hmm. road for the support from AppWIMS to help those specific communities? Well, one of the other goals that uh, I'm interested in is, is mentorship also, and, and finding ways for um, women who, who, yes, may have additional challenges or may feel additionally marginalized or not have the networks that, um, that they need, is how can we create opportunities for connection, whether that's at formal events or whether it's through more informal avenues. And then how can we also make sure that people have the mentorship that they need? And different departments do this differently. Some have formal mentorship programs, but others, maybe if you're in a, in a department that doesn't, how can we help create those connections? With all of this in mind, I'm sure a question you get often is, how do you do it all? How does she (laughs) do it all? It makes me think of that like Pinterest quote. It's like (laughs) Beyonce has 24 hours in a day and so (laughs) do I. (laughs) So I want to actually dive deeper into that question because I feel it's way too general. What is the driving force or forces behind your day-to-day motivation? And most importantly, where can we purchase it for ourselves? (laughs) Oh, well, and I do get this question a lot and it, and it always makes me laugh because there is no secret. There is no, you know, potion that you could buy in a bottle, though maybe I should start selling it. I'll just like (laughs) bottle some water and be like, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But really what it comes down to is, and this is a lot of what I teach in uh, the workshop that I run on time management, which is that I think about it in three ways. First, understanding our motivation. And second, our, our cognition or how we think about things. And then third is our operations. Cause people always want to know the operations piece. Like how do you structure your day? How do you use a calendar? What app do you use to keep t- track of your, your tasks? And it's really not fundamentally about those things. For example, if you think about one of the common problems that people have, which is they tell me, I just have too much on my plate. I just have, you know, 26 hours worth of stuff and only 24 hours of time to do it in. Plus I sometimes have to sleep and eat. So how do I get more done? And they, they kind of come to me hoping that I can magically give them more hours in the day, which I can't, but think about your motivation. Why do you have so much on your plate? And sometimes that's from truly a love of doing all those things. They really love their work in clinic and they want to serve their patients. They love their work with students and they want to serve the students. But sometimes it also comes out of a fear of missing out. If I don't say yes to this thing, what if this is what could have led to my career success down the line? And that fear is what motivates them. Or sometimes it's shame feeling like I have to prove myself. I have to prove that I'm good enough. I have to prove my worth. I have to prove my value. And whether that comes from, you know, how you're raised or just expectations that other people have put on you or expectations that you've put on yourself, it doesn't really matter so much where it came from, but noticing that, Hey, the reason that I'm saying yes to so many things is because I have to feel busy 
and important to feel like I have value. And so noticing what things am I doing out of a motivation of joy and finding meaning and creating meaning for my life and meaning for others. And what things am I doing out of a sense of guilt or shame or fear and using that as a means of saying, okay, this is how I can be strategic. This is how I can strategically take things off my plate or put them on my plate so that what I'm doing is more what I love. And I'm not allowing myself to be driven by shame or fear of failure. And that, that shame and fear of failure can have other ramifications too. Sometimes, and this is, you know, I've read a lot of the literature on procrastination, but when we fear failure, sometimes that leads us to procrastinate because whenever we sit down to do that task, then we have this voice in our heads that tells us you're not going to do a good job. You're not going to be able to do this. You are not cut out for this. Everyone else is better than you. You got into this job or this program or this school by mistake. They made a mistake when they let you in. And it's that imposterism and that negative self-talk that plagues us whenever we sit down to do certain tasks. And so what do we do? We say, well, I'll just check my email for a few minutes and I'll do this task later. Work and on my so, resume. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll work on this or I'll just surf social media or I'll just go clean my house or I'll do these other things that are easier because I don't want to feel the negative emotions that I feel when I sit down to do this harder work. Uh, so sometimes that fear of failure can lead us to procrastinate. Other times it can lead us to try to do too much or to extreme perfectionism or uh, to saying yes to everything because we don't want to be perceived as somebody who would say no to something. And so understanding our motivation is key. Understanding our thoughts, how we think, and this goes back to stoicism. I've you know, drawn heavily from stoicism and in how I coach and teach on time management, but noticing that our thoughts such as those imposterism thoughts or our thoughts of I don't know how to do this or our thoughts of this is going to be really boring. Those are what create the negative emotions. And so we do a lot of thought work on how to overcome that sense of imposterism or fear of failure, or even just thoughts of this is going to be really boring. <laughs> how do we overcome those thoughts? I know when we have tasks that are going to be boring and not that creative, that sometimes we avoid those or tasks that involve a lot of writing, especially for academics, writing tasks or doing charts. Charts are like the Achilles heel for many uh, physicians. How do we change our narrative so that we don't feel frustrated and angry and then avoid doing our charts? And then finally, it's the operations piece, which is having a calendar, scheduling out our time. A lot of times we lose time during the day when our time is fragmented, when we're going from task to task and switching instead of giving ourselves on our schedule 30 minutes, maybe three times a day. This is when I'm going to deal with my email and then having hour to two hour blocks of time in other spaces where we say this is going to the time I'm going to work on that grant or that paper or that curriculum or that PowerPoint. And so the operations piece is really the easier part. And there's tons of ways to do it. Bullet journaling, Todoist, uh, Trello is one of my favorite apps. Just a Google calendar is what I use most of the time. And then I have paper to-do lists for my, you know, kind of three-week or monthly to-do. And then my daily do of all the things I'm going to do that day and just line them up and knock them down. When I've got like 10 things on that to-do list that I just need to do, I'll line them up, knock them down. But that is so much easier when you first dealt with the negative self-talk or uh, the other things that are getting in your way. If you want a quick, you know, couple ideas for things that work really well, one is 
oh, I can't, no, I've got to do three things, three things that work well. <laughs> so one is when you, when you find yourself procrastinating or just feeling really down about some project or thing that you have to do first, do a thought download or thought drop, take all your thoughts and put them down on a piece of paper. I like to use a physical piece of paper because it slows me down a little bit compared with typing and also gets me away from my screen. So I will write down everything that I'm thinking and you do it without any judgment, without any censure, just really noticing what you're thinking. And it may be, I don't want to do this. This thing is boring. It may be, I'm worried that when I do this, I'm going to send it to my mentor or my colleague, and they're going to tear it apart. This paper that I'm writing. So just noticing, okay, this is why this, this, I'm worried that my mentor is going to tear apart this paper. So there's not even any point in me spending hours and hours writing it. That's the thought that's getting in the way. And that's making you procrastinate. So step one, do a thought download, write everything down. And then, okay, so I'm worried my, my mentor is going to tear it apart, but I still have to write this paper. Two things you can do there. One is ask yourself, what is the immediate next step? Well, the immediate next step is I need to turn on my computer and pull up the file. And then what's the step after that? Now I need to find the section that I'm going to work on today. Say I'm going to do the method section today, and I need to work on that. So breaking it down into such ridiculously easy steps that your brain can't be like, no, 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 that's too much. That's too much. We need to just check Facebook for a minute, or we need to not, you know, shoot off a few more emails, make a few phone calls, make it so easy that your brain can't give you any barriers. The third method is, and this works really well for a lot of people is to say, okay, I'm going to do a 20 minute sprint. I can do anything for 20 minutes for 20 minutes, set a timer. I'm not going to check my phone. I'm not going to check my email. I'm going to close those down. I'm just going to race as hard as I can on this project for 20 minutes. And once you start it, it's like an activation barrier. Once you start it, then you realize, oh, this is actually not that bad. Maybe it's even enjoyable. And, but getting over that initial hump is, is is the hard part. And once you're there, you're in your zone, you start working often. You'll be like, Hey, I could do this for 20 more minutes. So you set another 20 minute timer, but those three things of really just doing a non-judgmental download of all your thoughts onto paper to notice the thoughts that are causing the problems. And then saying, what's the immediate next step, set a timer and sprint for 20 minutes. Love it. Round of applause. <laughs> Everyone's clapping right now at their um, podcast machines, whatever you listen to. You listen to. <laughs> so I'm drawing so many parallels too with so many other successful people that I know. The first one, Joanne Jordan, who used mm. to be within our office, she would do that. I, you know, sit in the office, you'd hear her iPhone timer go off every 20, 30 minutes. And it, of course, it would be like the ugly radar sound. Like, <laughs> but I knew I was like, okay, Joanne's onto something new. Or if she reset it, she was doing that same task for a little bit longer. And I, I've tried it myself and it is kind of freeing because it's, it's kind of like getting into the apartment at the, at the evening, locking the door and it's like, no one's coming in. No one yes, can come in. That's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. And in contrast, it kind of using it with that timer, it's like 30 minutes. No one can bother me. I'm turning everything off. This time is for me, like, and selfishly in the best way to work on something that I need to do. Yes. And that emotional kind of dump onto the page too is so valuable. Like I just, I, I, I validate that as well. Sometimes just taking your journal out for 30 minutes and just saying, start with the phrase I want dot, 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 mm -hmm. and just write as much as you can. And it's fun to go back and look at those things over the weeks and the months and be like, okay, what's correlating with what I truly want? Is this thing I've taken on totally out of my realm too? Mm -hmm. So thank you for that 
that wonderful advice. I, I've already learned things for myself and I can only imagine what others are thinking as well, hoping that they get the magic potion. <laughs> Barring that, maybe I'll just, I'll just <laughs> Which the magic potion. We will be unveiling this week. <laughs> OnlineAOE.com promo code uh, Procrastination10. There you uh, go. <laughs> So my, just to kind of close this loop is when you think of all of your work and all the parties that you have, quote unquote, is there also time where you schedule or just kind of spontaneously focus on your personal wellness for longevity? Yes. To me, you know, it's funny. People talk about wellness being when you have good work-life balance. And I've never really liked the phrase work-life balance because that pits work against life, but really work is part of life. So to me, wellness means having challenges and good things to work on at work and also having time at at home. So for me, exercise is really important. Spending time with my family is important in a meaningful way. And then connecting with my friends that's become, especially over COVID we've had to be more intentional because I don't just see people in the hallway, see people at meetings. And so it's meant having to be more intentional about creating that time or sending those texts or making that phone call. Those are the things that are really important to me. And I've been experimenting in the last year or two with reducing my cognitive load, thinking about things that don't matter. So to me, and this is different for different people, but to me, what I eat doesn't matter. It is purely just calories to fuel my exercise and and make my body able to walk around in the earth. (laughs) And so I spend as little time as possible thinking about that. And uh, that frees up kind of my energy to think about other things, but wellness to me really, yes, longevity, exercise, spending as little time thinking about things that don't matter and then creating meaningful connections. Those are what are important to me. I think almost every day of your life, you're working with learners in some way and so many different types of learners of levels, backgrounds, ages, abilities. And so my question is, what advice would you give to newer educators who are just beginning their teaching journey with so much to manage in terms of differentiation? Is there kind of one lesson you can choose that you hope your students forever remember about your instruction, no matter who they are? Well, for the first question, for new educators who are just beginning, I would say teach all the time. Any opportunity that you have, whether it's six people over Zoom, whether it's 100 people on a stage, whether it's an interactive workshop, teach all the time and try out different things. And notice good teachers. So when you see somebody teaching in an effective way, 
don't just learn what they're teaching you, but think about what actually makes them good at what they're doing and take it, appropriate it, use it. Education, when you get into education, it starts out with you being the teacher. And then it really moves into you designing curricula or running classrooms, and then thinking about even more broadly systems of education and being involved nationally. So I would say start out where you are and try to develop as diverse a repertoire as you can in teaching and take all the opportunities that you can and be intentional about uh, reflecting on what worked well, what didn't, what do I want to do differently next time? A book that I would recommend that all educators read is called Make It Stick. The, sci- the Science of Successful Learning. And I think to be a good teacher, you have to be a voracious learner. So constantly learning yourself, constantly looking at how do we learn well? How do I learn? But not just how do you learn, how do most people learn? Because what worked for you may not work for other people. So I recommend that book to everyone. And then as you progress, I, some advice I got from uh, Alice Schwong, who's the Assistant Dean for Student Affairs that I thought was great is figure out what kind of learner you like to teach and what setting you'd like to teach them in. So for example, do you really enjoy teaching residents in the clinical setting? Or maybe you enjoy teaching those big lecture format courses or facilitating a small group workshop with medical students. So thinking about where are you gonna be the best educator possible? What kind of learners and what kind of setting? You know, that Saturday morning or when you're working on something really hard or it's been a really hard day and you're not listening to an audiobook, what song is your go-to to get you feeling great? Oh, Judson, I have a 90s playlist that I just love, love to the bottom of my heart. So if I am feeling a little bit down or maybe just need to pick me up, especially if I'm driving and I, my car has a little sunroof, I will open up that sunroof and I'll blast my, my 90s playlist that's full of uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Cranberries and Alanis and all of those great 90s throwbacks. And it just makes me feel wonderful. Thanks again to Dr. Christina Shimby for joining us here on AOE Engage, the podcast. This episode was recorded on May 10th, 2021. My name is Judson McDonald, your curator, your interviewer, your music selector, your sitting in my closet talking to myself. Thank you so much for a great season. It's been a truly a pleasure. Y'all, season one is a wrap. 10 star medical educators with so many great lessons and hours of content. We really hope you enjoy these episodes and continue going back to our archive to listen to ones you may have missed. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and like our podcast and spread the word to your friends. It helps us increase our listenership. And who doesn't want to hear these great episodes? We would love to hear your feedback. Click on the link in the episode description or the podcast description to let us know what you thought of this season. What are some things you may want to change if we are able to produce a season two of AOE Engage, the podcast? Let us know. 
If you'd love to learn more about the AOE, visit us online at net.unc.edu forward slash AOE. And with that, we'll see you when we see you. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of North Carolina School of Medicine.